Hello and welcome to the Entrepreneurship Cocktail Podcast. Today we have Umra Omar um, and we have our first social entrepreneurship entrepreneur. Welcome to the podcast, Umra. Thank you, Haider. So let's start with your introduction and uh, background. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to Safari Doctors. My name again is Umra Omar, a lover, a fighter, and a mother with severe allergies to injustice. I'm from Lamu, Kenya, from Pati Island, which is on the north coast of Kenya. And I am currently serving as the founder and executive director of Safari Doctors. Excellent. So what was your journey to Safari Doctors? What... Um what was your experience? What kind of education did you go through? And mm-hmm. what brought you to start Safari mm-hmm. Doctors? So Safari Doctors was almost an accidental. So there was no like vision or plan to be like, this is what I want to do. Um, community, health work. Um, so my biggest, uh, my biggest definition has been about working in health. Um, because when you're an African, you're either a doctor, a lawyer, or some definable position, or a pilot. I thought I wanted to be a pilot at some point. Um, so feeling that to prove uh, my brains, I needed to study science, you know, do biochem, uh, physics, and then went on to do my IB. Um, and then went on to do my undergrad in neuroscience and pre-medicine. So there was that whole fixation of if I am worthy, I have to be a doctor. Mm. So there's nothing social entrepreneurship about my journey at all whatsoever. I never sold lemonade. I never baked cookies with the Girl Scouts. I never did anything like that. So I was more um, driven on the health side. Okay. Because I I always felt like that's the one thing that every human being um, needs. So after doing then uh, my undergrad, Medicine was a little bit uh, not too exciting. So I went Mm -hmm. to my MA, social justice. Mm -hmm. And that's how I ended up in health and human rights. And it was accidental that uh, somebody came to our office at Open Society, saw a publication with my name, told me about a venture that had stopped around mobile healthcare. And I revisited that concept, which was fantastic. So it was a blueprint that was, you know, already done. There's nothing new about what we did. The only difference was that we did it bottom up from the local community versus a a humanitarian foreign um, entity, which is what um, it was before. Mm. So was that concept being applied in Kenya or somewhere else? It was in Lamu. It was a it was, a, it was a, a hotelier family in Lamu okay. that was running an entity called Sailing Doctors, mm-hmm. which had stopped because of the Lamu insecurity with the mm-hmm. kidnappings. Mm-hmm. And then 2014, you had the Picatoni attacks, mm-hmm. which is when I had gone to visit. Um, I'd come home. I remember September 2014. Um, that's when I came across, oh, this is a health project. It's in my home county. Um, it involves traveling and getting out to remote areas. So the concept sat very well. Mm-hmm. And so I just stole, borrowed, you know, owned, but just took this uh, blueprint that had a huge impact mm-hmm. and localized it. <laughs> yep. And when it started, it was pure charity because it was like a crowdsourcing and getting, you know, until some of my friends, I think, started blocking me because it was about <laughs> raising money from their coffee um, uh, coffee pot. Mm-hmm. I love for, I think after a year, 
when we saw the, you know, we were able to do that, show the data. And then now in figuring out how to sustain Safari Doctors mm. is where we turn into a social enterprise. Mm. And then, so what would you say in your career has contributed to your success in being able to grow Safari Doctors to what it is today? First, the biggest thing is connection to 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 my roots connection to home and being able to weave together a story because anything about social entrepreneurship is about the story mm-hmm. um and if you look at you know facebook is not new those high five before that but how do you create an intimate venture almost exclusive really nurture it and then let it organically grow. So I think that's what really worked for us because even when we started, it wasn't with that intention of this is what we'll do year one and then year two we're going to scale and then year three, you know, our returns should be X, Y, Z. It wasn't, it was just based on finding a need, um, being able to relate to that need, finding a solution, and then organically bringing together a team that connects with that vision that you're putting out versus it feeling like, you know, like a nine to five kind of a situation. And um, when you were starting initially, was the team on a volunteer basis or were they paid from the beginning? So from the beginning, I had, you have to have like one core or two core like paid staff that will do it as a job and have deliverables. So we had a nurse that we were paying and I had like an an office assistant that I was paying. So, and I was not on any kind of payroll for, I think about two or three years. Um, and in order then to now strengthen that very small um uh, you know um, staff is now we relied on volunteer medics we relied on uh, getting in kind support from like the hotels around where there was a uh, getting a boat to get to where we're going but we knew that our nurse was salaried the motorbike was there and the fuel we had to put in so that there's a very minimum output Mm -hmm. and then now leveraging the networks and the contacts in order to um, expand on the program yeah excellent so what was it like transitioning from having a paid job to venturing out on this project Uh, as initially you said there was no plan it was just almost going out on a limb so at first, it was uh, flying off the cliff, uh-huh. kind of an experience. But when I did make that leap, there was some sort of stability um, between, you know, uh, my spouse and between having savings that I know, okay, this can take me for a year mm-hmm. minimum. And then when the year starts uh, running up, I was actually working three jobs. Uh, Safari Doctors was one of the things. Mm-hmm. I was managing um, a hotel. I've never done tourism or ever desired to do anything in the tourism sector and then I was serving as a full-time director for um, uh, one of the these NGOs in the in Lamu County mm-hmm. so I'd wake up in the morning rush for my morning job in Lamu spend afternoons doing safari doctors work and then spend the weekends um, managing the property where I was working so and not lasted I think that was about a year between one to two years of that juggle Mm -hmm. so that what I earned could now go into 
backstopping the um, the initiative, but we had a lot of support in offsetting costs. Mm-hmm. We never had to pay for hotel. I mean, for um, office space or uh, our like Wi-Fi because the Moon Houses, which is the hotel that was the original um, founder of the previous uh, initiative, mm-hmm. um, there was also contribution to the staff salary. So it was literally like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. Mm. Puzzle. Yeah. So. Well, there, there was a significant sacrifice on your personal time, um, but at the same time, in terms of the venture picking up, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of pieces falling together to help you out. Um, so that's, that's very helpful whenever mm-hmm. you're starting out something. And then the transition now to an actual social entrepreneurship um, mm-hmm. enterprise, how, how did that come about? So we were lucky, and I go back to the issue of as a social entrepreneur, you have to have your story because ha- that's what, you know, connects with not only your customers, with not only um, the people supporting you, but even with, with yourself. Um, it gives it that purpose. So we were fortunate that within a year and a half of operating um, Safari Doctors, we got the exposure through the CNN um, heroes and then the UN person of the year. And then that just opened like several doors of getting support um, coming on board. Um, and how to to ride that wave for as long as possible was the scariest part of it because you like you know you're surfing and you catch a good wave but if you catch it badly mm-hmm. the it's short-lived um so once we had uh, done that for about i think about five years is when now it was like okay we've been doing this it's been purely like externally supported then came the concept of we need to set up a static health facility for those who can afford to be able to um, to pay. Mm-hmm. And that now involved the investing um, capital in getting a, a clinical officer and setting up the space. So there was, there's, a, there's a, a, a kind of a curve incline that happens at some point, mm-hmm. which is what happened for us to transition into a social enterprise. And luckily we had the partners to help us do, do that. So now we have a clinic that's only been open for a few months, but we have, you know, we're the only ones in town that have a pharmacy that's not for profit. So we're, we're offering, you know, very competitive rates, mm-hmm. but it lo- allows us to now sustain um, our medical input. We have our personnel that we can leverage with, you know, our, um, grant resources and the income that comes in. We will soon be able to, um, claim for NHIF and other insurance mm-hmm. uh, companies. So we're a medical facility that is not for profit. Mm-hmm. It's a company limited by guarantee, which was a huge headache getting it because of justifying that, okay, the revenue that we make actually goes back um, into the venture. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of room in a service that is a necessity and for us to make it accessible and you know, quality um, healthcare services. And that's where we are, I think now five months old and it's, you know, there's, it's looking good. Excellent. So this is uh, on 
Lamo Island itself? So this is on Lamo Island in Shella where we have our, all our logistics operation is where we have that uh, facility. And then we're looking to build now and expand uh, on a level four hospital on the mainland using the same model, partnering with uh, Bomo Hospital and uh, being able to now bring in healthcare as a holistic package of um, outreaches, of a center for excellence and research and as now the tertiary care, which technically tertiary care should be your last option it's uh, curing um, diseases but healthcare is supposed to be preventing so we're looking to have a social enterprise around a comprehensive health model that invests heavily in youth as community health workers invests heavily in moving healthcare to uh, the people what we're calling first mile health and in uh, leveraging now a research hub that can certify nurses, health workers, and also, you know, address um, health based on uh, data. So tell us a bit more about that. How does that work in terms of having now the youth coming to the people? So the big challenge we have around health right now is that with, you know, over the bulk of our population, 70, 80% is in rural areas, but our healthcare investments are in static facilities that are highly, uh, you know, that are costly um, in doctors who sit, can sit in the hospital, wait for a sick person to come the whole day versus going to the people and focusing on preventative and primary healthcare. So, and given that we have a young population that's unemployed, that is mobile, that is digitally savvy, if we're able to certify more community health workers um, and address the policies around it so that there's incentives and remuneration around it and get the youth to play a more active role in that sector, it means we're addressing the health question, our sustainable goal development number three from a two-prong approach from young people being uh, agents of uh, healthcare and also from healthcare being on the ground at people's homes. So you're certified first health, um, basic ailments, having a mobile farm pack. You know, there's people even getting something like a Panadol is like a journey that costs more than the tablet itself that you're looking for. So just reimagining um, the healthcare sector. The distribution of healthcare in one way. Mm-hmm. Excellent. In terms of the skills um, that were important for you, because um, now Safari Doctor is how many years old now? Seven, going to seven, seven December. Mm-hmm. So looking back from inception until now, what were the skills that you had gained earlier that turned out to be very important in building Safari Doctors? You, you mentioned uh, storytelling quite a bit. So what are the others? So the another one is having a hard time saying no as a person. <laughs> saying is that, is no. That, is that a skill? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a skill or a bad habit. But being able to challenge the status quo of how things are presented. And I think that's what social enterprise is about. It's about challenging the same ways of doing the same thing and coming up with something out of the box. So how do you sit and imagine like, hey, you know, I put this in the trash can. 
maybe I can do something else with it. Or I listen to the mic and I hear the audio is not the way I like. Maybe I can. So that, I think, is the basic foundation. So for me, it was, you know, oh, I'm pregnant and I'm in Lamu and I'm jumping boat to boat and I'm a woman and I'm not supposed to be sleeping out in the bush. But being okay with the, with that space was the first one. And let's go back to obviously not underestimating education and the networks that I've been fortunate to to have and leverage whether it's for ideas, whether it's for resources, um, uh, whether it's just for that moral support um, that, you know, go for it um, is very critical. Um, so that's been, and it also then now translates to in our workplace of leveraging networks, working with the county government, um, uh, working with our international partners. And another skill is teamwork, team building. I like it when somebody comes to the office and they say, oh, we don't know who's in charge and who's not. That's how we work. It's like a linear um, model of working because you have to acknowledge that everybody's bringing something to the table. Mm. Whether it's the person who's, you know, making our offices functional for us to be, they'll be sitting in our strategic um, meeting. They'll be sitting at our end of year, you know, staff retreat. Um, whether it's, you know, it's the most senior person in finance or whatever it is, it's like, an, you know, building that teamwork. We defined, you know, collectively what our values are as an organization. So we have our seven values um, around respect, innovation, um, and then we have courage, humility, um, leadership, accountability, and solidarity. Like those are actually intentional words that we can hold ourselves accountable to. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the whole team and then having a very functional and committed board mm. really helped us. It was a pro bono. It's like the top people in the field, but because they've connected to the story mm-hmm. and connected to what you're doing, we have, you know, the top of the lawyers, the top of the business person, um, and identifying key people that would fill in the challenges or bring out the best of what you're trying to do. So for us, it was healthcare. We're like, okay, we know we need the legal side. Um, we need the government side represented. We need a community person to bounce off all our community challenges. We need an international part- person. We have Kelly, let's say, who's our international. We have ANK that supports our legal side. Um, we, we have um, Sumeya on board. So just these brilliant minds that are able to connect with what you believe in mm. and, and give you your support. Excellent. Um, one thing I want to touch on, um, as you mentioned, the team is very linear. Mm-hmm. How does that work in terms of decision making and planning? By uh, by delegation. So I can, you know, we're like anything to do with outreach. Um, Mariam is in charge of the outreaches. Anything to do with the office administrative person. So you can allocate also in a linear way where then I know I become the last, you know, sounding board. Um, and there's also that um, teamwork that people can bounce ideas off of each other. So you'd have, you know, like Maria, maybe go to Masolo and the finance team. Like I was thinking of doing it this way. Do you think it's okay? And if then it really hits a, a roadblock there, then like, you know what, let's consult this um, with Omar and see. But giving everybody that sense of responsibility that um, they can manage and make uh, these decisions. Excellent. So it's, you've empowered and authorized them in such a way that 
they don't need really need to come to you. Yeah. That's excellent. It's, I think it's one of the best ways to use your team to the most effective manner. Absolutely. I, I can go MIA for like, you know, a month or two and you know it's functioning, but yet you are also accessible. So it's not like saying, figure it out, my door is closed, but creating that, um, you know, it's like a membrane that we can go through. Mm-hmm. So one uh, tip I would ask you, or maybe how did you go about building your network in such a way that it helped you support um, Safari Doctors? building the networks is something that you know we keep on saying network 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 you have to first of all is just drop your guard a little bit like you know having um being open-minded is very critical whether it's culturally socially class religious you know i've interacted with people come from one side of public school and they feel like oh you know i'm not good enough to sit on this table um with somebody from you know an ivy league or whatever it is or you're with somebody from a certain religion and they're like oh you know what? there's no way i would walk into that room because there's you know there's a dog at the gate <laughs> so <laughs> so there's like all these social barriers that we really put up mm-hmm. that end up making us you know see somebody else as an other mm-hmm. but once you're working on a social enterprise like you know death doesn't want to know whatever your line is um if it's climate change it doesn't care you know what uh, what house you live in whether it's a mud house or a brick house so the networking is just being curious being eager being listening more and being open to new um experiences and being okay also with being flexible mm. around what what you're doing like we've had to move from um, uh, doing outreaches on a motorbike, adjusting to certain villages, you know, having um, one of our, the clinics where our nurse was, was attacked and set on fire. Does that mean we close shop? There's a COVID pandemic. You know, does it mean we close our doors and sit back? So have your networks that support you to turn every challenge into an opportunity mm. versus, you know, be a Betty Downer, as we call them. Yeah. Excellent. What are the various challenges that you encountered in building mm-hmm. Safari Doctors? The biggest challenge that anybody goes through is the financial, figuring out the finances, who you're hiring, um, who you have to let go, how are you p- planning your programs. There's, you know, sometimes where you're like, are we going to be open in a month or two? So I think that's um, been the biggest cause of sleepless nights. Um, and then something else is also... Sometimes you have like just fear try to creep in, mm-hmm. um, especially because we're working in sensitive areas um, around Lamu County, around the Bonnie Forest. So sometimes you're like, like when January 5th, right before the pandemic, there was a, an attack of the military base. And I remember we were set to go on a clinic on the 6th, the following day. So it became like, should we, should we not? Am I going to be responsible? It's like uh, getting our team out there. So just, Making calculated and informed risks is also one of the challenge of how you, you gauge it. Mm-hmm. You know, should I, if you're, it could be even something like a restaurant. Do I want to change the menu or ingredients? Like that space of risk taking that sets you apart um, from the crowd. I remember we did go out on that clinic and some of the things that we made sure is, you know, informing security, 
myself also being part of that outreach and, you know, the team collectively agreeing that they are okay with, with doing that. So mm-hmm. managing risk is, uh, is another thing, uh, thing, whether it's security or, you know, investing extra into your industry. And then the last one, I don't think it's been much of a challenge, but has been more of an opportunity. Um, the issue around age and gender and, you know, investing more in women and young people. Mm-hmm. I'm, I just turned 38 and I think I'm what the second oldest in the office of like about a dozen staff. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you sit in the boardroom and, you know, you look at everybody you're like, Oh my God, this venture is being run by people under 30. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, uh, you know, that was a huge challenge at first, just proving that space. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Proving that to you or outsiders? Proving it first from within. Because, you know, when I read a CV and it's like a 24-year-old person and you're like, you know what, let's do this. And let me put as much as they can handle on their plate. And then the outside world, you go into a meeting and there's, you know, all these wazis around the table. And someone's like, you brought a little girl to the meeting. I'm like, no, I brought mercy <laughs> to the meeting. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's juggling family life by the way, but that's a whole different story for another day. <laughs> I mean, you, you can mention it. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's it's something for a lot of entrepreneurs we, that we, they need to handle. Yeah, there's that whole thing of you know, because a lot of the entrepreneurs were young, you people even much yeah. younger, and you're deciding, you know, do I want to buy diapers or do I want to invest in you know my startup. Um, and for me, I'm the most biased person because it was because of having a young person that I saw, the, a, a young child that I saw the urgency in maternal health, um, that I was able to live in a place like Lamo or else I'd have been too busy thinking of the city life and, you know, being in my red RAV4 and getting around. So sometimes it's an opportunity mm. um, in, in disguise. So just being okay with the unknown yeah. um, is, I think, uh, very important. I think uh, you're a young daddy. Yeah, I mean, all all entrepreneurs have. I think they deal with that almost on a daily. If not, if they forget it for a few days, within they'll have a stark reminder of the unknown can happen at any point in time, and and so it's a balance between excitement and fear. And fear. Um, you're excited about the opportunities, and you fear about the worst that could happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really interesting balance um, for people to have, and it's it's part of the journey. I mean, it's 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 a choice that you make mm-hmm. once you jump into the entrepreneurship lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's both exciting and the, some people their entrepreneurship started because of the starting a family. You know, you have mothers who started designing clothing wear because mm. of having a uh, a little one. Um, and I always tell myself, I'm like, yo, it's not that serious. Like, mm. it's some, it feels like it's the end of the world. And I'm like, people had a hard time knowing if their kids would survive giving birth, let alone, you know, if we can balance Quavo. Yeah, that's what I try to tell myself every night. <laughs> How do you manage the emotional baggage of being an entrepreneur? been very fortunate to have a very supportive um, family um, from parents to siblings it just you know from a, a 
it's just been a very fortunate space um to to be in and also i do what i do in lamu county which is also kind of like cheating mm-hmm. it's a very communal um set up um i have i have a school also in my front yard mm-hmm. um which is uh, i don't know if it's just you know how social it is it's more like 35 kids so being create to, uh, to create a supportive ecosystem where minimizing your um anxiety causing factors as much as possible and having you know that kind of core mm-hmm. one thing that you mentioned that I wanted to touch upon earlier is the fears of dealing for example you mentioned the attack mm-hmm. um have you in any of your trips encountered any i would say uh militant uh yeah in our trips so we have never encountered directly ourselves especially because what we've been doing has always been on a very neutral um uh, kind of standpoint um getting clearance that we need to be able to ferry um medicines around we've only dealt with cases that have been affected mm. by um the 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 presence you know there was a lorry that was attacked we've had um a young girl that we had to follow up on her on her leg that she lost there's a lady that had like you know a bullet lodged in her neck we had to follow up on surgery so we've only by association mm-hmm. addressed some of the issues but personally i don't think there's ever a, a moment where we've gone out feeling like okay it's going to be a horrible moment but then you do go out with the the reality of okay there's you know mm. So and then when you go to places do you let those locations know in advance that you're going? Um so just to clarify we're talking right now about traveling in the Boni forest through the five villages of Basuba, Milimani, Mararani, Mangai and Kiangwe which is where we're saying is the hub of uh, the Al-Shabaab. So what we do is other than informing the security we don't give too much advance notice of when we're going like we don't say oh we're coming on the 30th of August mm-hmm. but and um, we would, we would know internally what our schedule is and then you know a week or less in advance um let know the community the security um personnel as well and then get a clearance because we have to clear everybody that's traveling um by sending a letter um that has to be um verified yep so i'm guessing the community is very supportive oh yeah it's been a very beautiful experience because we always say thank you for allowing us to serve mm-hmm. because or else we you know we wouldn't be able to what would you say are your biz- biggest successes and wins in your seven year journey so far my biggest success or our biggest success has been the ability to show that it's possible to have a locally run organization with young people um and a model around first mile healthcare that has a potential of scale and so getting all the recognition that we've had for the staff myself as an organization um has you know been a, a nice um endorsement on that you know being able to have Mariam we get top 35 under 35 in Kenya is like wow you know and that already opens doors for other staff being able to send part of the team for training in Amsterdam and getting an award for recognizing what they're doing so just the biggest success is just 
that stamp of recognition for the work that we're doing. Mashinani. Excellent. So just to recap in terms of what you've shared so far, I think one of the biggest keys to your success has been storytelling mm-hmm. and then being able to gather a team that is empowered mm-hmm. um, and responsible, your network as well that you've built over time. And um, have I missed anything? Yes, can do. Where you turn your or what seems like a dead end into a tunnel of, mm. yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So those are your keys to success. That's been, I think that's, I think you covered it. You summarized it very well, Haida. Excellent. And um, what is the vision for Safari Doctors going forward? So Safari Doctors, as I transition out this year, actually, to bring in a new executive director, is the idea is to flip the healthcare model. So in the next, we're just completing, actually, funny enough, our three-year strategic plan, our first strategic plan, um, and we've been able to check off almost um, everything on the list. And so the next three to five years, we want to see um, a model of a hospital linked with an outreach, linked with a research center mm-hmm. um, happening in Lamu County, especially anticipating the port that's growing, the influx of uh, the population increase. So having a healthcare model that flips the, I don't want to say colonial structure, but of centralized Central. service delivery. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, it's quite interesting because you think about healthcare and clinics as some place where people come in and you're, you're doing it, it's going out to the Flipping people. it, yeah. So that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, you are transitioning out of um, Safari Doctors. Mm-hmm. How are you going to be involved later on uh, i mean uh, you're you're giving the day-to-day tasks to somebody else but mm-hmm. are you still going to be involved how so part of our transition plan was obviously having that robust team very functional um uh, nodes of the organization and then we're going to have like a six-month overlap um like a co-directorship um as uh, like a as a handover and I'll still be uh, at the as a, one of the board of directors mm-hmm. as a founder and what I'm transitioning to is not like I'm getting on a flight and moving to Alaska but I'm running for governor of Lamu County and the main drive behind that was how do we infuse um, the change that we so have been trying to achieve into um, institutional um, you know structures where we can address policies we can address the resources allocation and that now allows us to go in um dealing with both prongs of uh, of what uh, what we're going through right now as far as health is concerned mm. yeah. and uh now in your new career what is the main motivation what what pushed you to decide that i'm gonna take this step and i'm gonna run for governor may 1st 2019 mm-hmm. um labor day we had a big program with uh, women and uh, participation in health budgeting processes. Put together a petition, identified all the issues and 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022, 
Mm-hmm. It's going to be almost three years where there's been like no feedback, um, no response, no public participation. And it's not to say it's from a malicious space. Maybe it's an issue of capacity. It's an issue of resources. But whatever it is, is that there is an issue. So that's when after working with these like powerful 57 women who represented 138 women groups using poetry and uh, food mm. in order to actually communicate and address issues that are happening in their community is what made me realize that there's a lot of space for doing things differently. Mm. There's a lot of energy that's not being tapped into youth and women especially there's a toxic masculine model of uh, development that we continue to um to implement and that's when i was like wait the place where this change can happen for my people in Lamo County is through the gubernatorial um, seat. Mm-hmm. And that's when that seed was planted and we've been watering it ever since. <laughs> I remember if I may share part of my story is um, when I was 10 years old, my father seemingly randomly just walked up to me and said, and don't even think about becoming a politician. <laughs> 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 and um, that was it was uh and for me it was perplexed like where is this coming from but i guess for me alhamdulillah as a, i got the opportunity to go to friend school mm-hmm. um and the experience i got um being in that school while living in nairobi seeing i got i also got the opportunity to travel quite a bit mm-hmm. uh thanks to my parents um, but seeing what they're presenting in school mm-hmm. and seeing the reality of what was on the ground, I always ask my my parents, I guess, like, why do we have potholes? Why is there um, electricity running out? I think I remember when we went to Egypt and uh, we were walking around at night and I think I was eight to nine years old and I asked my mom randomly, like, what time is it? It's like two o'clock in the morning. It's like, what? It was mind blowing that at two o'clock in the morning you could be walking around. There's so much life because mm-hmm. that time was uh, I think towards the end of Moi's era, mm-hmm. and by nine o'clock everybody's in the house. There's no going out. Is no go zone uh, going out at that time, and it was mind blowing that uh, in another country people are just walking around and living their life at two a.m. It's, it was very interesting um, having that experience. And for me, I always thought, after my dad told me never to be a politician, I always thought about what is the biggest way I can make a change um, in my society? Because you, you don't live life just by yourself. Yes, you can earn a salary, feed your family, but you want to have an impact on society. Mm-hmm. For me, that from what I've seen, is that entrepreneurship is one of the biggest way mm-hmm. to make an impact. So it's interesting for, to see your perspective in terms of going inside and making the change from inside uh, the political arena, which is very important as well. Um, I think for too long, uh, our society has mm-hmm. shunned, or at least uh, certain classes of the society has shunned politics. It's like, oh, it's a dirty game. Or, but if we don't, as you mentioned as well, if we don't make the change, who will? If you talk of entrepreneurship, um, it's a key, yet there's decisions being made on this other side that affect, affect. 
the landscape for social entrepreneurship to thrive, whether it's, you know, your spaces, taxation, access to the resources. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, it's a chicken and egg situation that we're talking about. You know, you mentioned the more area when you're like, you know, you're in by nine. It's no different than right now where instead of us getting COVID solutions um, or rapidly, um, you know, whether it's vaccinating, whether it's conducting more tests, we're putting in these restrictions that are no different than, you know, the society that we were trying to change a few decades ago. So I feel like with the younger a vibe of what's happening mm -hmm. and occupying all these spaces, mm -hmm. occupying all of them. It's not one versus the other. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, if you have the strength to stand in that corner, hold that base, somebody yeah. else, you know, so we have to make sure that we have penetrated all yeah. corners. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's uh, my, my long-term vision mm -hmm. was to be able to befriend people mm -hmm. who were, in the system early enough mm -hmm. and help them grow in such a way to make an impact rather than them trying to steal their way to to success you to be a kingmaker <laughs> and it, it's it clearly I think that's not working for uh, for Kenya as you see kingmakers now trying to run for official oh. positions <laughs> <laughs> yep 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 and so it's a it's it's a really interesting uh, scenario. I think uh, my my question would be, how do you plan to address the inefficiencies in uh, government mm -hmm. uh, situation? So first, it's not about going in with this, you know, naive or like kumbaya or everything's going to be so perfect and everything. The beauty that we have is that with Lamo being a small county, it's only 150,000 population, about 70,000 voters right now. It's just that there is a lot of room to create an alternate narrative before. You know, it's kind of like when a mango is rotten on one side, you can slice it off and still save the rest of it. Um, so the first thing is about leveraging, like back to the leveraging networks and partners because no man is an island. Even counties don't work in silos. Even countries don't work um, in silos. So opening up the county is number, uh, it, it would be a key thing. And then also coming from the social entrepreneurship side is being able to to leverage um, uh, that those industrial values versus coming maybe from uh, a corporate um, uh, space is uh, creating that narrative of the fact that by the virtue of my candidacy, being a woman, being under 40, that it's not business um, as usual. So I think there is a beautiful, like, you know, loophole for efficiency, at least increasing Kidogo. Do you think there will be buy-in from the people that are already in those positions? I mean, one, one thing I can say is, yeah, I don't know the transition between um, before devolution until now, but I guess the devolution is new, still kind of new. Mm -hmm. Yes, people have been in those positions for maybe about a decade or so. Is there a way of, re like, what I'm trying to reach at is like, People are not necessarily too entrenched in their ways. Mm -hmm. They might be 
potential for change? So by first, by the virtue of devolution is that, you know, there is devolved functions, which will be at the county level and their positions and roles that have been created that were never there before. Um, health is devolved, early childhood education is devolved. So being able to kind of step into these spaces is, I think, you know, it's it, it's a, still a fertile opportunity versus if it was going into a structure that was, you know, maybe the same national paradigm um, and having to swim upstream um, in that. So there will they are challenges that go around to, you know, you have government officials that are used to some way of working. You have the challenging issue of around per diems and allowances and all the things that suck Kenyan taxpayers dry. You know, it, it just how to how to cleverly navigate that I think will be will be key, and obviously going in with the right allies and the right support is uh, also a strong factor. Uh, are incentives key to making that work? What kind of incentives? I mean, they can be positive or negative incentives. <laughs> I, I think the biggest incentive is what you see happening in Rwanda with Kagame is leading by example. Um, and that becomes, you know, and having consequences that are seen through yeah. and having, whether, even if it's a reward system that's justified and, you know, correct the mechanism of implementing that. So that's... Hey, if, you, if you look at um, Rwanda, Singapore, China, they're very dictatorial in a way. Mm-hmm. Is that a something that can help get things through or is it is it more just about getting the right incentives no it's just create you know, it's defining what the rules are, are going to be either mm-hmm. so and like i said if you if you go in and you're a thief your government will be thieving mm. if you go in and you don't listen to anybody your the, what you put in will not listen to anybody and the thing i'm learning more and more every day with this campaigning is there's nothing that comes close to parenting like politics mm. <laughs> nothing <laughs> comes close. and so if you have um if we're going in you know if it's the, the feminine qualities of leadership around consultation and compassion and everything those start coming through it will it will sit through in how you hold your meetings it will sit through in how you allocate your budget it will sit through on who you put in on that table to make mm-hmm. those decisions so it's not about this incentives or punishment but it's about what are the values and the norms mm-hmm. that you're going to be putting in place by the virtue of sitting on on that you know chair yeah yeah i think values is a really important thing that we need to address as Kenyans. <laughs> I, I mentioned some time back is people were not necessarily angry about the IMF uh, lending money to Kenya. that they were not in that position to get those funds. Because like, if you take a majority of us and put us, put us in those positions, mm-hmm. we would do the same thing, unfortunately. But now it's, it's about finding that way of changing those values and, and and that's across the border it's not just with the politicians it's with voters how we vote it's with the guys how we ask for the votes it's for how we uh, uh, create those uh, governance structures it's across the board because I'm, I'm still uh, having a question of deciding you know who's more corrupt the voter or the person being <laughs> voted for <laughs> uh-huh. so it's yeah mm-hmm. I, I hope um for your sake and the impact that you've done with safari doctors the people on the ground 
can see that and see what potential that you have um on their lives going Hopefully. forward yeah so it's it's uh what can we do as listeners uh and uh supporters to see what we can do in in terms of your new journey the first thing you can do is believe mm-hmm. and then you can you know get the word out because especially nowadays with media and everything being on our fingertips you can contribute financially umrahmar.com where our campaign is you could you know what you feel like you bring on the table mm-hmm. yep there's so, definitely something that all of us can do what are your social media handles um at umra omar for instagram for facebook and uh what's the third one twitter <laughs> yes and then umraomar.com for our website have you considered using tiktok no thank you <laughs> it's actually why not because our facts uh, uh, the research shows that whatsapp is actually more effective okay um especially cuz we're trying to get the votes on the ground uh, whatsapp and the kabambe mm. getting a bulk smsing mm-hmm. excellent so we wish you luck in your journey asante haida thank uh, you for your time thank you for your time and it's never too late to start anything eh? absolutely as tough as it is <laughs>